Hello everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising, with host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting and analyzing NFTs. So, if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Floor is Rising with Sabertooth, myself and Kizu. Today we have a special guest, Brandon Buchanan. He's founder, general partner of Metaphor NFT fund. Um, he's been in crypto a long time um, and now he's running NFT fund and very pleased to have him on the show. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Brandon, tell us about your story, how you got into NFTs and also how you came to sort of found the, the Metaphor NFT fund. I have this kind of neandering story about how I even got into crypto, but, but essentially, you know, I decided in you know, 2014 with an ex-co-founder of mine that we were going to start a, a fund around digital infrastructure, which led us down this path of creating a you know, blockchain first fund. And we started doing a lot of different things in, in the crypto space. We had a, a large mining operation. Uh, doing everything from a, a, you know, a GPU farm in upstate New York to taping out ASICs with a group called What's Miner out in China. The summer of 2020, I think everyone had already been cognizant of what was happening with NBA Top Shot, which, which was gathering a lot of steam. I kind of naturally gravitated towards what was happening you know, with NFTs. I kind of always had this philosophy or thesis around the tokenization of everything. So all that's to say, you know, I was on the, I was in the Telegram, the Discord, 4chan, really kind of anywhere I could be to kind of learn more. And, you know, certainly, you know, the run up um, in 2021, you know, I think sort of as a result of, of, you know, crypto punks taking off, you know, certainly spawned, you know, I think this new generation of NFT investor. And certainly I kind of fit into that mold. I would say I'm, you know, I feel like I was later to the game, although I knew about crypto punks in 2017, you know, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm one of the newer folks to this space. And so anyway, so in into 2020, when I moved to Miami, I connected with one of my previous investors from that first fund. And, you know, we decided to, to you know, plant our flag as the first dedicated, you know, first dedicated in, in NFT fund. And uh, so we, set out to raise a very small pilot fund uh, to kind of test out this theory. We wanted to give investors broad exposure to the NFT class. And so that meant, you know, buying the NFTs themselves, buying NFT related coins. So Axie, Mana, the Sand, it meant doing, you know, GameFi stuff. So we were buying a bunch of the Zed Run, uh, Z1 Nakamoto horses. And then we were also buying, you know, plots of virtual uh, land as well. And then, uh, the, you know, the current fund that we're doing now, which you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll probably spend a majority of uh, this time speaking about, was really to give investors this sort of exposure to quote unquote grills, right? So we've, we've been trying to acquire you know, the best assets from, you know, the most innovative and important collections really dating back all the way to 2014. Let's dig in a bit about, I guess, your current fund. And I guess you said it yourself, the, the thesis is around kind of grails. I, I think this is a pretty common thesis. Um, I recall, for example, another well-known fund, Starry Night Fund, uh, that was raised by kind of three hours capital. Um, they also kind of focused around grails. And, and I think this is a, a common sort of thesis. Can you maybe talk a bit about that? Like, why do you think this kind of grail thesis um, of investing in NFTs is kind of the way to go. And I guess maybe, you know, before we get started, probably <laughs> we should define what a grail is and, and what is investing in sort of grail NFTs is, is or are. 
I look at grails as sort of, you know, really kind of in its just pure Webster dictionary term, right? Like probably the most, one of the most coveted assets in the NFT space. And so for us, that means you know, one of one works from folks like X Copy or of one of one rare Pepe, like we've acquired the Pepe Nopulus. You know, it means an alien punk where, you know, the rarity factor, the scarcity factor, the known community that's built around it, and, you know, having this kind of fervent collector base all coalescing into, you know, an item that everyone recognizes as, as sort of, you know, a true pioneering, you know, asset within the space. And so, you know, when, I guess when we think about grails, I mean, it just, just broadening that out, it's like, what does a true, what does a true connoisseur, a collector look at? And, and, and they say, wow, like that's one hell of a piece, right? Like you can notice it just by seeing it, whether it's on, you know, some blog or whether we're talking about it here, you know, the name, really kind of that's that's the motor and i guess if we could if we compared it sometimes i like doing it sometimes i don't but when we compare it to you know like basketball card collecting you know a michael jordan rookie card is considered a grail and i think we certainly have some of those you know in the nft space in order for let's say an alien punk to to kind of be considered a grail into the future the crypto punk collection has to be considered grail like so to speak mm-hmm. and then and then the 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 alien within the cryptopunk collection um has to maintain or possibly outperform for example the floor of the mm-hmm. cryptopunks can you talk about i guess both of those two things because you know an event that has i mean it, it happened quite a while ago now but was pretty earth-shaking at the time was was the flipping of cryptopunks by uh by board uh, apes by board yeah. apes and and i think that yeah. was an event that a lot of Certainly a lot of punk owners would never have even imagined could could happen, but it happened. I think it's shaken the faith of a lot of punk owners that maybe punks aren't the grail. Maybe punks is just another, you know, PFP. And 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 then also uh, I think, you know, some collectors have have stuck to a, a, an opposite thesis that, you know, that it's it's better to collect sort of floor collections mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. you know those super rare collections is because it's actually a lot more liquid whereas it's, it's much more difficult to sell yeah there's a lot yeah. for us to unpack just taking the crypto punk collection itself mm-hmm. i mean it's history and lore you know regardless of you know what the floor price is or where it's standing you know i think its contribution to the nft community i think is sacrosanct right i mean i, I don't think you know, regardless of price, anyone can look at it and and say, hey, like they haven't contributed so much, whether it be from the 10,000 number that now has become sort of default with a lot of collections. I think the pixelated image, which has, you know, been mimicked and done derivatives of and, and things of that nature. I think when you're also looking at, you know, total market cap and sales, you know, it certainly continues to be, if not the top collection of all time, still among the top. So, from a numbers perspective, it's still there. Um, I think from, you know, having this OG, if you're like a, you know, I, I guess, you know, we would call them crypto punks or like OGs when, when we talk about people who do like Bitcoin, Monero and some of the older coin, while some of the newer folks are doing Solana and, and Luna and things like that, right? So you have this OG aspect um, to crypto punks. But then I think it's also on the, the bleeding edge of some of the discussions that are happening in and around NFTs, right? Just this recently, the IP of it being acquired by Yuga Labs. I mean, that is a 
it's the first piece of M&A that we've seen, you know, with an NFT collection. I mean, that's, that's remarkable. And, you know, I think the marketplace that they had created, obviously, I know Rare Pepe is that counterparty in their marketplace, but to be able to, to buy and sell your crypto punks, I think that's going to be something that becomes more common with collections in the future. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, price, which is obviously important to everyone, everyone likes to see the number go up. But they just recently had a sale of an alien punk for 8,000 ETH. And so that, you know, the top sale of all time for, you know, a PFP has been a crypto punk. And I think they had a couple sales of around, you know, 2,500 ETH for uh, some eight punks. And so I, when I look at all of that and in its, its totality, you know, you're talking about a, a historical NFT, which is, I guess, the, the term of art that, you know, you know we use in this space for, for stuff that's older than, than 2020. As a historical NFT, I think its place is is solidified. And to your point, the market changes, it evolves over time. And I think what Yuga Labs has been able to do with Board Apes, a lot of it feels like divine timing, right? I mean, it was kind of like right place, right time. I think when they first put out the, the Board Apes, I think even they themselves would admit that they didn't think that, you know, the project was probably going to work. It wasn't like it was a, a, a sellout mint right off the bat, right? But you developed this community. They were able to execute on their roadmap. They created so much value. I think we, a lot of times when we're talking about utility, what we're really talking about is value. They created so much extra value for, you know, for their, their you know, user base and collector base, you know, from the minute that they put out the Board Ape Kennel Club, and followed it up with the beaten serum and now with the ApeCoin and everything else, you'd be hard pressed not to see why that they would surpass something like like CryptoPunks where essentially you were just um, kind of just holding your piece of artwork. I mean, I think the, the you know, the board apes is clearly, you know, something else in, entirely. I don't know if that's kind of getting to your question, but, I, you know, I'll pause there for kind of reactions or, or follow ups there so you can. But also, but also, you know, with, with the crypto punks, it's it, like when I say they're on the, the bleeding edge of the important discussions that need to be had, you know, we're talking about on-chain, off-chain images. We're talking about IP rights for the holder. We're talking about, like I said, M&A. So like for, for me, it's, it's certainly, you know, ground zero or the most important collection in terms of pushing the market forward in one way or the other. And, and had it not been for a big collection that everyone cared about, we wouldn't even be having a lot of these discussions or you wouldn't even really have a board ape, right? So like they are, you know, for me on, on kind of the Mount Rushmore of collections, irrespective of, you know, what, what floor prices are doing. And you know, I guess when how this discussion that we're having right now kind of led into it, you know, we're talking about strategy, you know, as, you know, putting on my venture capitalist hat, a lot of it really has to do with deployment. You know, how do you deploy tens of millions of dollars efficiently? How do you do it on a risk-adjusted basis? How do you give collectors that could, you know, go out themselves on OpenSea or LooksRare or whatever and, and acquire some of these assets themselves? How do you give them something that's different, unique, or edge, especially when you have a pooled vehicle? And so I think in, you know, in that regard, when we were mapping out the deployment of the fund, a lot of it meant doing this retrospective of NFTs to show you know, where they've been, where they are now, and where they could potentially be headed, which, which means you know, obviously we had the historical stuff. We have the name coin things like Twitter eggs and um, you know, blockheads. We have 
of crypto punks, both the V1s and the V2s. You know, we have um, you know generative art. We have stuff from art blocks, but then we're probably also going to to delve into you know things like music NFTs. So it's really trying to show you know how NFTs are transitioning from something that are that's sort of esoteric to most of the of the world to something that will eventually be ubiquitous. And we think by having these you know grails, we're essentially having historical artifacts or digital antiquity. And so to your, to your point, certainly, I think there are folks who are making a ton of money that are flipping NFTs, that are buying floors, that are making the cognitive recognition that, listen, if they're not going to give me special rights for owning a gold ape versus a regular ape, then I may as well buy one on the floor that I identify with and like the image. I can sell that one when the floor rises, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, you know, a place for having a more liquid trading strategy. And certainly, you know, we, we plan to employ that in you know different future funds and things like that but um for this kind of first one you know we, we wanted to come out and really kind of add the, the pillars of, of nfts to the collection uh first before we started to do you know more active trading and then you know on the active trading side you know we wanted to have the tools in place to be able to execute on such a strategy right i mean i think obviously there's a lot of you know, rarity tools and rarity sniffer and, you know, the floor sweeps and things of that nature. Um, but we wanted to have our own internal tools that we could use to be able to, to execute such strategies. Is it all about the OG his- history and the kind of lineage, in a sense, the pedigree or the provenance of, of the project? And of course, CryptoPunks ties squarely into that. And then it seems like in, in opposition to that, we have board apes, which seem like, I mean, it's not entirely opposite, but I think in terms of how they've delivered on quite a bit of the roadmap and how it's an ongoing kind of experiment, social experiment with the IP rights Ooh. and things like that, um, seems much more of an anti-artifact. It's quite not static, right? In the sense that it's, it's quite a dynamic, evolving project. Um, and I was wondering if if you think that you know that is a interesting and useful uh, schema to think about projects. Like, do you actually think of? I think it ties into to a number of things, right? When you're talking static versus dynamic, really, kind of what you're getting at is whether or not some of these NFTs are securities or not. You know, so I can tell you one of the underlying debates that you know, certainly happened with with our outside council, and I think. You know, as the SEC continues to look at at some of the, you know, drops and different scams and everything else that that happened in the space, you know, when you look at the earlier NFTs like a, a, a rare Pepe or like a CryptoPunk, you know, they'd be very hard pressed to say that that that's a security, right? Like, I mean, that that is essentially a form of digital art or digital collectible. You know, once you get into this realm where you are doing airdrops, where there is an expectation from the consumer that, you know, that they are going to profit based on the the efforts of the folks that are running the enterprise, you start to get in a very gray area of of what's a security or not, right? And so, you know, even artists that now we're seeing you know, use NFTs as a tool to essentially raise capital, right? Like when you're doing, you know, open editions and you're selling, you know, tens of thousands of these things for, you know, half an ETH or whatever the the going rate is these days, you really are catching, you know, the eye of of the SEC. And so for us, yes, I'm looking at static, I'm looking at dynamic, I'm looking at, you know, where I think this is headed 
for you know web3 brands i think the new companies startups i think they're going to look at the model of a yuga labs of a proof slash moonbirds of a um azuki and they're going to look at that and say man like this is this is the way that we should launch our company we'll have our roadmap we'll have our plan we'll be able to go out and raise capital via nfts the end consumers will have the stake in our success and you know basically the images will be if you're a clothing company you already have your sketch of what your collection is going to look like if you're a media company you know you're already kind of piloting out and testing out different ideas and then obviously i mean like i said we've, we've seen that with you know with board apes whether that be for your actual club where you're going to have a physical club or like now we you know we see with with their coin with the upcoming other side drop that now you know they're building out their metaverse there we've seen um, you know, I guess the, the breadcrumbs for how that's going to unfold. And so um, to your earlier question about, you know, provenance and the history, you know, for me, that is that is that is very important because like even when I listen to music, right, like if I'm listening to a Kanye West song and I hear, you know, a sample, I could tell you, like, I don't know why, but the way that my brain works is I have to go find the original. You're right. Like after, if, I, if he's playing like an Otis Redding sample or Aretha Franklin or whatever, I go back and I listen to the original. There's just something so beautiful about hearing the base that everything else is built on top of. Um, and I think it's the same way with with NFTs. Right. It's like seeing the the origin kind of takes you to the to the truth and the power of, of where this is all going. And quite frankly, it's just like um, I mean, it, it, it's been pretty phenomenal. So. We certainly look at at that. I think today, for most collectors, I think there's a bias towards you know, the more dynamic projects, right? Like if you, I'm sure you guys have seen like the debates on Twitter. I think when when Drifter uh, did his open edition, everyone was like, you know, maybe jokingly, maybe sarcastically, whatever. But they were like, you know, where's the utility? And I think a lot of the artists on Twitter were like, well, you know, we are the utility, right? Like it's the art. <laughs> and, but I think there's this expectation from newer folks to the space that are like, well, wait a minute, where's my, where's my airdrop? <laughs> Where, where's my coin? Where's my, where's my number go up? You know what I mean? So we've, we've entered a, a different realm of expectation that folks want their collections to, to evolve, that now it's bigger than the art. They want to be a part of a, a cool community, right? And you guys see it with everything from, you know, cool cats to gutter cat gang to whatever, it becomes this sort of reflection of, of kind of who you are. So, and I think that's a powerful driver. Um, it creates this sort of circular feature that you want with these collections where it's like the artist is listening to their end consumer, their end consumer is rewarding you know the uh, you know the collection by buying and driving up volume and driving up the price, and that in part allows everyone to kind of continue and do more. So, I don't know what happens when when folks step off the hamster wheel. I you know maybe we'll see on a, a downturn at some point, but you know for now, I, I mean that seems to be the, the standard mode of operation, right? But there, there's it's there's just a a ton of demand, you know, for new launches, new projects that you know people want to get on the ground floor. And, you know, I think we saw it most recently with, with Moonbirds, but, you know, obviously with, you know, the Fiocious paint drop and a few others, I mean, we're, we're seeing it sell out. And I think it's the same thing for the other side, you know, Board Ape Land drop coming in this week. I mean, I think it's going to, I know they're doing a Dutch auction, but I, I'm pretty sure that thing is going to probably sell out without too much, too much trouble. Were there projects that you believed were fundamentally overvalued 
or conversely, were there projects that you thought were undervalued? So for us, um, you know, because we are taking this historical approach, not that we've been, you know, agnostic to price or less price sensitive, but there have certainly been moments where I felt like we may, you know, be overpaying. But the fact that you want a particular specimen kind of, you know, mandates that you, that, you, that you make a certain purchase, right? And I think it's probably the same for a traditional art collector. Like if you just really want a certain Basquiat or a certain Rothko or what have you, you know, given it, given, you know, the scarcity and limited nature of some of these, you know, these items, for it to even come and be available for purchase, sometimes you end up paying a certain premium. And, you know, our actual first purchase that we made, which was, I think, somewhat uh, controversial, you know, our first purchase was a crypto for the, the Chomper, which I think was ranked like number eight out of the 8,000 or so in the collection. And not that the rarity was kind of the biggest driver for why we purchased it. The actual, the, the biggest driver was to send the statement that our ethos was very Web3, very decentralized. And we believed in CCO as kind of like the best, you know, IP policy for people who are holding the digital artwork. And so, you know, we wanted to have, you know, the best specimen within that collection, not to mention that Super Grimplin is kind of a you know, OG crypto artist. So I would say like, yeah, like if we didn't make that purchase, then at the outset, we probably could have gotten it for, you know, somewhat of a discount today. But that doesn't mean that over the long term, long horizon, you know, we don't think, you know, new buyers and, and collectors that come to the space won't see the same thing that we, we saw. And you know would be interested in in the collection. I mean, obviously, the, the cryptos have continued to do significant volume, at least at at the floor level. We haven't seen a lot of the you know the bigger works at the top of the collection sell, but um, certainly the project is still you know going, and you see a lot of derivatives that happen as a result of it. But other projects that we thought were um, undervalued, overvalued, I think by and large. I know there was a flurry at the end of the year on with historical NFTs, but we felt that, you know, rare Pepe's were super undervalued, right? Obviously, I think there are a lot of them, but if you just isolate certain collections, whether it's like the Series 1 or Series 3, which I'm a, a big fan of as well, you know, the, the Series 1 cards, even the Nakamoto's, you know, you could get them for, you know, 30, 40 ETH, like as late as, you know, end of last year. And, you know, for me, I just felt like, wow, like owning one of those 300 series, one card one of the rare Pepe, which, you know, again, kind of stands in a, a class of its own, very similar to, to CryptoPunk, you know, thought, I mean, for me, I would have bought as many as I could, right? So you know, we've, we've been collecting that pretty much the full collection of the series one. I think the only thing that we're missing right now is the Lord Tech, you know, but there's only nine of those and and i think there's only maybe one full card for sale i think it's listed at like six or seven thousand east something like that but yeah rare pepes you know we believe are undervalued i'm trying to think what else crypto punks right now seem to be pretty fairly valued i think you know i think there was a lot of fudge because people didn't you know really know there was no direction given and and matt and john were really sort of hands off you know, you know with the direction of, of the collection so you had some very prominent collectors who, you know, I, I guess, you know, exited, you know, for lack of a better term. I know um, I, I forget his exact 
crypto punk number, but he had a very famous eight and we ended up four four one five six. Yes, yes, yes. And you know, so he had a, a, a Twitter thread which I think resonated with, you know, with a lot of folks. And so I think there was a lot of that. I think there was some confusion around how they were going to deal with, you know, the the V1 punk issue, if we call it that. I mean, really I look at the V1 as sort of like a demo tape for what Larva Labs ultimately used as as you know, their collection, given the, the kind of break in the code that it got patched by a, you know, a rapper. But um, yeah, so all of that kind of drove the price down. So I think we're, we're down to like a 60 ETH floor or something like that now. But again, that's a, that's a, own a piece of history for the same price as a, uh, as a mutant ape to me seems like a, a great bargain. By and large, I think, you know, most things end up getting fairly priced. I'm one of those people that's very like, I don't know, libertarian or laissez-faire or sort of total free market. And so I think whatever the price people are willing to pay is kind of, you know, what it is. And certainly I think with, you know, the, the open sea and the 24-hour market and everything else that we have in NFTs, I, I certainly think they're, they're more or less pretty efficient. It's pretty amazing how quick information gets, uh, you know, gets dispersed. I think one of the, the founders of Yugo Labs mentioned that he was on vacation and he was thinking about <laughs> Mebits and their utility. All of a sudden, the prices of, uh, you know, the floor price of, of Mibits goes up, right? So people are paying attention. People are looking for edge wherever they can. I think, by and large, prices reflect kind of where we are now. I'm interested in your, I guess, theory of that and how, and how that fits in with the thesis of your fund, right? Because, you know, the, the, the fund thesis is grails of sort of historical NFTs. Obviously, the, the the fund is a, a financial venture. So, you know, at some point in the future, you're hoping that the 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 NFTs that you're buying will be worth a lot more, which suggests that there are entrants who are not in the NFT space who will come into the NFT space, who will purchase some of these girls for a lot more. Um, I'm interested in how you think about like who these individuals, institutions are, like how that will come about. I certainly think the traditional art world will slowly kind of thaw out and see this for kind of what it is, as, as potentially, you know, in their view, contemporary art. I mean, I think we've had big sales, you know, like things like Beeple at Christie's. Obviously, I think that there was going to, there was 101 board apes that sold for 22 million with Sotheby's. So we've had these kind of big, you know, sticker numbers there are people out there you know who you know one look at it as a financial opportunity but two who i think you know view this uh as as real contemporary art and i, I know most recently there was the generative art sale that happened at, at Sotheby's. you know for for us you know we're looking at trying to democratize some of the pieces that we have you know the, the grill so to speak so i think you know sometime on the in you know, the next couple of years or, you know, some point, you'll see us fractionalize pieces and allow, you know, everyone to have a piece of ownership in some of the stuff that we have, right? I mean, I, I think owning, you know, a $20 million alien punk or whatever is not really attainable for most of the world, but certainly folks can own a piece of that history. And I think the, the beauty in tokenizing uh, assets is that it, it affords people an opportunity to do that. And so you know, we're going to be looking at ways to do it. I think what you will also see, as opposed to just like our traditional view of just like, hey, it needs to be some mega wealthy family or, or corporation that's acquiring some of these assets. We're already seeing it to a degree that you're going to see these DAOs 
that are forming, where you have these communities that are forming around a specific project or a specific artist, and you know they will be acquiring assets as sort of a, a pooled vehicle. I think that's a, a very kind of likely next step. And then I think you know beyond that, once these different tokenized assets get, get traded kind of regularly, just like um, you know ApeCoin or or Doge or anything like that, I, I think it's just going to become you know more in the, the popular arena or, or popular eye. And, and then obviously, I think that we're still building out all of the tools, the picks and shovels for folks. And so, you know, when, when if you're on Instagram and you're able to mint, you know, your own image or NFT and own your own digital content and people are interested in, in, in buying and selling it, I think that is going to spur another sort of, you know, boom or catalyst for the market. Um, and so we have a lot of we have a lot of things that we're waiting to see, right? Even the Coinbase NFT marketplace, you know, I think we were expecting to see that in, in Q1. You know, they're in, in beta now as we kind of head into May. And I imagine maybe back half of, of this Q2, you know, it'll be launched and out, out there for the public. But that's all to say, like, you know, it, it, it even you know, they have tons of access to of people who are buying and selling crypto who would be interested in NFTs who don't want to go through the trouble of creating a MetaMask wallet and connecting it to OpenSea and all of the other hurdles for people who aren't as technically advanced um, in crypto that are going to help drive you know, consumer adoption. And so I think that's it's, it's sort of kind of all underway. It's just kind of better to get you know, some of the, the, I wouldn't say issues, but it's better to get some of these, um, the, the iron out some of the, the wrinkles, um, even like what we saw the other day with, with you know, the, um, the a coup avatar is where a, a flaw in the smart contract and the loss of you know, 30 plus million dollars. But we have to go through these pain points, you know, to, to get to, a, you know, to get to a, a, a better area. And I think we're certainly head there, headed there, but it, it takes all of that before we have sort of like, you know, mass, mass, mass consumer adoption, right? Like, I mean, we really do need to, to de-risk and also help on a, like a UX, UI way so that people can interact you know, with NFTs. And so I, I think that's all part of the process and, and we're headed there. One of the comparisons to the contemporary or the traditional art world is that oftentimes we have like the art media, we have you know, like art critics, yeah. art historians who kind of contextualize things. And also we have institutions like museums that, you know, obviously legitimize certain artworks. So it's not just the, you know, the, it's not just the kind of mafia of private collectors <laughs> that convey value. And do you think that, you know, we will see the emergence of a similar kind of mechanism in terms of like legitimizing and conferring value and, and, and kind of like verifying that value? Or do you think that it will be pretty much how it's been so far? That is to say, there's a lot of, not, not just shilling. I think it's, it's more like yeah. self-interested players whether individual yeah. or institutional. I think so Twitter, Twitter for me has been an amazing, you know, learning playground, even from, I think, at the earliest phase when I encountered Leonidas, uh, who, you know, him and, and White Rabbit, who, who put together this amazing medium post, you know, talking about the history of NFTs and really kind of tracing back every collection and, and educating people on Know, why rare pepes are important or why crypto punks are important. You know, folks like that and, and Adam McBride have been hosting, you know, these, these Twitter spaces where they invite 
I think the most recent one I, I you know, listened to, they had uh, you know, one of the founders from, from Saratobi you know, come in and talk about what they were doing. Um, so I think they've been instrumental in educating people about the space. I think individual collections themselves that have been hosting Twitter spaces have been important. So I, I say for, for folks who are not deep in the space, you know, if they're able to definitely check out some of the Twitter spaces. I think media is definitely going to play a more prominent role over the next, you know, several months and then moving forward. I know, you know everything from Baroque's you know, Rug Radio to other, you know, media that are coming up. I, I actually joined the advisory board of non-fungible films, this uh, Cameron Mullane's company. You know, you will start to have different media enterprises that are helping educate people. I'm sure you guys have seen on you know, both Instagram and Twitter, NFT now has a very prominent voice uh, in terms of helping people identify, you know, both old collections that should be paid attention to, as well as new artists. Also metaverse, I think they, they spelled the E in, 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 in there with a number three. On Instagram, they've been very great at, um, you know, guiding you know, their community uh, towards projects that they should be looking into. You know, obviously, like you have to take everything with a grain of salt. You, you know, you uh, trust but verify and everything in crypto. But you have these groups uh, who are trying to educate and who are trying to do it for the right reasons to preface and if they own a particular you know, piece of work, you know, that you know, they do that up front. And then I think the auction houses and marketplaces play an important role, too. That is a double edged sword, because if, you know, if Coinbase is serving as a gatekeeper, and, you know, doing kind of what you said, quote, unquote, filtering different collections, you know, I think that may give, you know, slanted power towards, you know, whatever collections, right? So like if, if Coinbase decides to do dead fellas, but they're not going to have subducts on their on their marketplace, like that creates a, a some, so, some sort of a mismatch, right? And I think that to your point, it's very like antithetical towards what we're trying to achieve with, with Web3. Brandon, it's been great having you on the show. Before we let you go, final question, who is your favorite NFT artist and what is your favorite NFT collection? Okay, my favorite NFT artist, I'd have to say is Pixel. I don't know if you, you all are familiar with her. We have a few pieces from her work. I really, the thing that I really love you know, most about her stuff is it incorporates you know, music and sound and, you know, sort of the rhythm, really like the rhythms of, of the ocean that kind of inspire her. I and mean, so I really love this sort of like, you know, I wouldn't quite call it like glitch art or whatever, but you have this sort of like, I don't know, dynamic kind of video within also some music reference. So I really love the work that she's, uh, that she's doing and she kind of fits within that, you know, generative art mode, really kind of in the same way of like a, 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 a ringers with Dimitri Cherniak and folks like that. My favorite collection right now uh, is uh, NFT Worlds. So I'm pretty bullish on that. And that's sort of like a, you know, I guess a, a virtual world play. I'm really excited to see, you know, how those guys continue to develop out that project. They have a very ambitious, you know, roadmap here for the Q2. Um, and then I would be remiss if I didn't, um, you know, also point out, you know, my kind of... <laughs> unwavering love for CryptoPunks, both, you know, the, the V1 CryptoPunk, which is like the original um, contract, but then, you know, the, I guess the Larva Labs approved uh, CryptoPunks. I think, you know, both individually and collectively are very important to the crypto space. Thank you for joining us, Brennan. And uh, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, sure. Let's keep in touch. And you know, thanks again. Take care. 
Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow. And give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at Floor is Rising.